The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. October is a, a really fun month for us. Uh, October is our anniversary month as a church. And so this October, we celebrate as a church our sixth birthday uh, from our launch when we started six years ago and, and met in the evenings uh, just up the road at Lord of Grace Lutheran Church and renting that space in the evenings. And then after a year, we had our first morning service here in this facility. And so October is great because we get to, to look back and to see all that God has done. And God's been so good to us. He's exceeded our expectations as a church um, from six years ago and starting in uh, my living room with just a dozen people and seeing what God has done and the lives that have been uh, changed and the gospel that has been proclaimed and gone, and gone forth. And uh, we have, we've always wanted to, to make it about the gospel, this story that God's holy, we have sinned, Jesus saves us, he blesses us to be a blessing, and, and everything else is kind of uh, an afterthought. We wanted, to, we wanted to, for people to know Jesus, and some of the ways we see that is when, uh, when we hear little kids actually talking to their parents, saying, uh, you know, Dad, Pastor Pete was always talking about Jesus. And it's like, yeah, I think that's the point. This is great. We're doing a good job. We're doing a good job. We're talking about what Jesus has done. We're talking about how, how he is our hope and our salvation. And so we thank God for, for six years, and, and we pray for, for, for many more. But in the midst of that, um, it gives us an opportunity to really thank the people that, that, um, that pour out their time and energy and gifts uh, for Holy Cross. You know, some churches, how they honor uh, visit or how they honor, excuse me, volunteers is they um, will do it rather drastically, and they will have a Sunday service where no volunteers will serve. And they do that to give the volunteers a break, and also to show the church, see what happens when we don't have volunteers. I seriously don't know how we could do that. I mean, I would, I would love that. I love the idea. I want to bless you as volunteers, uh, and to give kind of a, a visual for everyone else to say, hey, we need volunteers, but we seriously could not meet without this. In, no matter if you like the preaching or if you, you really love the music, I promise you wouldn't come back if it weren't for our volunteers. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you come in, when you come in and you're, you're warmly greeted, you know, we have a great team, a hospitality team led by, led, led by Stephanie Culver, who, who graciously um, is that first, that first impression, that warm welcome, that smile that lets, us, that lets you know that, that you are loved, that you may feel like a stranger, but we hope that you'll become a friend. If you serve on that team, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for pouring your time into that. I want to thank Stephanie uh, and want to, I want you to thank her too. I want to thank our kids' ministry. I mean, come on, we've got maybe 80 people in here, and there's like 180 just on the other side of this wall uh, of these kids. And so we, we do this because we want to bless you as parents and as families, but we also do it because we want to bless the kids as well. Uh, we want to create a, a Jesus-centered and gospel-centered environment where our kids are learning about Jesus, building friendships and growing with their peers, and learning how, how the gospel changes all of their life. And that is a huge sacrifice. Um, uh, Peter Zimmer, uh, who's actually homesick, with, he's home with his sick daughter today, but he, he helps um, you know, uh, schedule these volunteers and create a culture of family discipleship in our church. Just got done with a great uh, parenting conference this weekend here at the church. And he is, he, he is just laboring so well. Uh, he's not volunteer, so we shouldn't thank him. But uh, no, he, he does a lot more than what he gets paid for, I promise. But if you volunteer in that ministry, if you're a parent or a volunteer that is serving once a month or even sometimes more, 
thank you so much. Um, we, we are really blessed by you and so encouraged by you. Our 456 team, I mean, these are our, our, our grades three to six that meet monthly. I mean, just a great group of people. Our worship team, there's, there's not a single person on our worship team that is paid. Everyone uh, from our musicians to our tech team and Greg Kelderman so faithfully working back there, uh, moving through the slides uh, so that we can actually corporately worship together. Uh, you don't notice some things until it goes wrong, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't think to thank the people who are helping until it's absent. Uh, when a slide is missed or the lyrics are wrong, uh, then you feel like, wow, it's, I, don't, I don't even know how, which way is up. But, but that, that happens so infrequently. And so we have such a great team. Uh, and Greg is helping out with, uh, you know, helping get volunteers for tech and, um, and our worship team led by, led by great people, uh, uh, John and David and Aaron today and, and, and the other volunteers that help with that. Uh, so God has just been so good. There's, there's so many more and you think you know who you are. Uh, if you're helping with our bookkeeping and our finances, um, if... If you are uh, getting here early, I mean, there's people that get here early to make the coffee, to bring the donuts. Those donuts are a one-time thing, just so you know. Okay, we're not, the don't, we're going back to, okay, for, for the benefit of my waistline, it was just a one-time thing. But we're going back to the donut holes next week, okay, the little donut holes. Uh, we have some, we have a, a, a pretty good group of guys that are, they are unpaid um, staff. And, and, and they, they really, it is a part-time job um, where they don't get anything. Our deacons and elders, uh, Gary and Robbie and Bill and, and Bick and Peter and Josh, and, and these are your leaders. These are the ones that, who serve you in an, in an extra dose, an extra capacity, um, and so we're so thankful. Um, so all of you, I mean, even look around the room and see how you, how you serve in, in different ways. And uh, nothing that you do uh, for the love of God and the benefit of others is wasted, I promise. Uh, nothing that you do uh, is ever is wasted when you choose to do it for the glory of God and the, and the love of your brother or sister. Um, and so I want to thank you. And would you just, can we just collectively like praise God and, and, and thank each, everyone for volunteering. And if you don't, if you don't volunteer, I hope you feel guilty enough to sign up and actually do something. Uh, Oh, another thing that we're really celebrating today. So we're celebrating our anniversary as a church. We're celebrating and thanking our volunteers. We're also celebrating today being the final week in a year-long series through the Gospel of Matthew. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Yes? What a great series it has been. If you have your Bible, why don't you pick it up? We're going we're gonna to finish it up today in Matthew 23. Uh, what a journey. We actually started Advent of last year. Um, went through, we started Matthew in Advent, and then New Year's Day, we kind of was our post-Advent start to the Gospel of Matthew, and we have spent so much time here. I want to read this passage, um, and then we're gonna we're gonna walk through it and kind of just put a nice bow on this whole series. and And I hope that uh, that God will just kind of bring us home in a sense of like wrapping this up, giving us some great things to be thankful for and to continue to apply. Uh, this is God's Word, and every time we come to God's Word, it's, it, it, it may feel uh, challenging and convicting and hard, hard to handle, but it is for our good. Every time we, we see God's Word, uh, we are invited into His joy. Even with a passage like this, as you will soon see, um, it's difficult, and it confronts us. Here's where we start in verse 1, chapter 23. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when, the, and, when, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has, has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and, and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous by, to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel and the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is God's word. So we'll end on a high note, an encouraging note. We'll end with something just like, we love you, God loves you. 
let's go have a good time. Well, it doesn't feel like that, does it? But I promise you, this is a high note, and this is a good thing. 43 sermons, 43 sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, over 30 hours of teaching, likely double that of teaching and conversation happening in our life groups throughout the week. For what? It's kind of like auditing a class. It's kind of like taking a seminary class. We're spending that much time on one book of the Bible and on one thing. Well, I want to finish, by start, I want to finish the same way we started almost a year ago. And I started by asking you this deeply personal question on New Year's Day. Who do you think Jesus is? Because your eternal destiny depends on knowing true things about who Jesus is and what he did and who he said he was. Your joy in life and endurance through a life of following Jesus and through all your struggles all depends on on answering that question and what you would say to that question. Who do you think Jesus is? Matthew's retelling of the life and death ministry and resurrection of Jesus was unique in the sense that 60% of of all of his book, of all that he said, were the the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, almost the whole thing, the majority of it is in red. It's all Jesus talking. And he, like, unlike any other gospel writer of Matthew, or, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, he quotes the Old Testament more than any of the others. Matthew's message is clear, and, that's, and it is this. Jesus is King and Lord and Savior, and who he is and what he has done commands our complete and perfect attention and worship. And so we, we taught this whole book of the Bible or the whole, this whole book of Matthew, so that we could know who Jesus is. And in knowing who he, he is, we would worship Him. We would give Him our worship. We would give Him our attention. We would give Him our devotion and our obedience. We would give Him our very life. And in believing in Him, we would receive the promised blessing of God, the forgiveness of sins, being called sons and daughters, being adopted into His family, citizens of His great eternal and forever kingdom. For Jesus says if we acknowledge our complete need for him and turn from a life of sin and to to Jesus in in reliance and hope and trust, then we have that promised forgiveness and rescue. We would enter into his perfect and forever kingdom. If you felt that at at times that the the book of Matthew has been particularly challenging, it's, it's for a reason. If you feel like this passage is particularly challenging and even startling the way that Jesus talks to the people around him, the way he talks to the crowns and the religious leaders, the way he talks to his disciples is startling. It's because there's real danger. And Matthew uncovers the real dangers that Christians need to understand. And we don't really like to talk about those real dangers. We don't like to talk about the uncomfortable things about following Jesus. And here is what that real danger is. It's possible to genuinely believe that what we are doing is God's work and that we are believing as we should, as he wants us to believe, and that we are accomplishing what God has put before us to accomplish. And yet it's very possible to be deceived in all of that work and to miss out on the the blessings of God's forgiveness completely. This is the hard thing to talk about, where Jesus says, I never knew you. You, you did things in my name. You, you went to synagogue. You went to church. You, you read God's word, and yet you don't have a relationship with me. And so the worst thing that can happen to a person who thinks that they're a Christian is for them to be confused and to be deceived and to end up realizing that they weren't in the first place. 
And I'm not wanting to make you insecure. I'm, I'm actually, I, there is something about assurance of salvation and assurance of faith that's something that God gives to us that we can know that by trusting in Jesus and following him, knowing him, that he died for our sins, that we would not doubt at all his love for us and that we wouldn't have to feel insecure and to doubt. But Jesus wants us to know that we, it's possible, though, to be deceived. It's possible to be confused. It's possible to miss out on it. And you see that the church, the church then is not an entrance into the kingdom of God. The church is not our way of getting into the kingdom of God. The gospel is. Let me put it another way. What I mean is this. Just because you're in the garage doesn't make you a car. And so for many in the time of Jesus' teaching, they thought because they were associated, because they had a proximity to, to, uh, to God's people, God's chosen people, that merely proximity and, and exercising some spiritual disciplines and kind of going along with the flow, that all that God had promised to his people was theirs. But just being in the garage doesn't make you a car. And just because you're in the church doesn't mean that you're following Jesus. It doesn't mean that you've embraced and trust in this gift of salvation. Rather, it's the gospel. It is this good news, which is the powerful, gracious, transformational power to bring about all of God's kingdom purposes in our heart, in our church, and in our world. You see, Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower. He talks about the seed, that the gospel is like the seed that is planted on a receiving heart, that receives it, that recognizes their need, that they're broken and they're poor in spirit. They're hung they hunger and thirst for for righteousness. The seed falls on good soil. It's the gospel message that, that hits our hearts, convicts us of sin, that enables us to cry out for God's mercy. And then when the seed is watered, it grows into this healthy tree that bears fruit and provides blessing to themselves and to others. And it provides symptoms. It gives, it gives demonstration of this authentic life that is happening within this tree. One more summary of our time this year, and then we'll dive into this passage specifically. My first sermon on, on New Year's Day, uh, I told you that we would see three kinds of people throughout the book of Matthew. We would see those people that rejected Jesus just outright. Those people that just re rejected Christ. They rejected his claims. We saw this in Jesus' hometown. Uh, those who, pr who pridefully denied Jesus as king over all and lord over all. They thought it was absurd that this man, this man born, this Nazarene, uh, would, would, is really Lord of all and God's promised Messiah. We see Jesus in his own hometown, you know, people that he grew up with and, and schoolmates and friends and neighbors. They're like, who is this guy? We know him. We, we, know, we know who Jesus is. He's not Lord and King and overall. And so they rejected Jesus outright. And then we saw all these other kinds of people, those who casually observe Jesus. In chapter 14, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they were fed by him, and Jesus performed miracles, and people casually followed him and, and followed after him, watching what he would do. They gave him token allegiance, and, and they even confessed him. And their, their mere proximity to him even demonstrated to people around him that, that, that they were part of Jesus' ministry and that they knew him and followed him. They showed up when he taught. They followed along with spiritual activities. They came to worship service whenever they had a food truck, things like that. Some of you got wind of our donuts, and that's why you're here. <clears throat> and yet there's this casual observance of, of Jesus. Like, yeah, I'll go to that. This Jesus sounds pretty great, but they never intended to give him their life. And then there's this third group who unconditionally follow Jesus. There are those, as we have seen, who will say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. 
And because you're my Lord, there are no conditions to my obedience to you. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I will give you whatever you ask of me. I'll abandon all that you have asked me to abandon because you're worthy of nothing less. If you are who you say you are, then my whole life is yours, period. We want to be people who are in this third category, unconditionally following Jesus, devoted to him. And our passage today deals squarely with the second group, the second category of people, those who, the, who face the greatest threat to our devotion to Jesus. Our greatest threat is not outward denial, but in giving lukewarm, quasi-Christian allegiance to Jesus. Lukewarm, quasi-Christian, deceptive, and, and un, disingenuous lip service to God. Living as if we follow Jesus, but in our hearts, we are dead in sin. How do we know that Jesus has no interest for people like this? Well, this passage is directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. And whatever you might have heard about the Pharisees and the scribes, they were well-respected and highly regarded religious leaders of their city. I mean, in today, today's time, we think of the Pharisees, and if you've been in church, you probably have a negative attitude of them. Oh, the Pharisees were bad, and we shouldn't be like them. But at the time, they were the well-respected and well-regarded people of their city. They gave their lives to the study and devotion of all things biblical. And Jesus calls them, just in this passage, I want you to hear some of the names he calls them. Hypocrites, sons of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers, persecutors, and murderers. This is nuts. Jesus is having some horrible things to say. There's this phrase that occurs seven times in this passage, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is a way of Jesus saying to anyone who claims to love God and for today, anyone who claims to follow Jesus, that it's a very bad thing to miss what Jesus wants us to see about who he is and what he has done. And if we miss it, woe to us. Woe to us. That's not the name of his horse, right? It's, it's, this is a bad thing. Like you, don't want to be, you don't want to be in this camp. You don't want to miss who Jesus is and what he is saying and what he has done. And it's possible to give your whole entire life to the study of the Bible and miss it. And so it's my hope today that we turn to these seven woes, and we turn these seven woes into seven prayers. Seven prayers for us, seven prayers for our church, seven prayers for you as a follower of Jesus. Seven prayers on our sixth anniversary. I know it doesn't sound right. It sounds like we should do it next year, right? Seven prayers on our seventh anniversary. That's really good. But you know what? We're not going to be in Matthew next year, and I don't want to cut out one of these woes. And so it's seven prayers on our sixth anniversary. You can handle that, right? I know it's inconsistent, but that's okay. May these be our prayers as followers of Jesus. May these be our prayers as a church together. Internalize them. Take them to heart as we work through this passage. We'll move through them rather quickly. At least that's my intention. Prayer number one. Prayer number one, that we would practice what we preach. That we would practice what we preach. This is just pure irony of Jesus, his words when he says, he says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. What he means is that these people have been given the authority to teach God's word. And they sit in the place of authority to teach God's word. And so people should listen to them and observe what they say. 
But Jesus says that the people should listen only to the degree that their teaching is actually faithful to God's word. And when it comes to their actions, Jesus says, I don't want you to imitate them at all. What a horrible thing. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites through this passage. He says, says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Don't imitate them. Don't imitate their behavior. Obviously, no one's actions are perfect. No one is perfectly holy. No one one follows their beliefs perfectly, right? You and I, to some extent, will always uh, be hypocrites in the sense that we are not truly living out all of our beliefs, that we don't always practice what we preach, and that Jesus isn't saying don't do what they do because they're sinners and you must be perfect. He is saying this, he's saying if we proclaim that our, it's crucial that we practice what we proclaim, and if we proclaim that our successes and status do not define us, but we are consumed by money and appearance and we're workaholics, then we don't practice what we preach. He is saying if we proclaim that God upholds the universe by His good and sovereign care, yet we practically rest our hopes and dreams and future in politicians and lawmakers, then we don't practice what we preach. He's saying that if we proclaim that it is by grace that we have been saved, it's not of our own doing, yet when confronted of our, in our personal sins by someone else, if we become defensive and locked down and argumentative and prideful, then we're not practicing what we preach. And so Jesus is saying that it's not about perfection. It is about faithfulness of truly believing and soaking in what we believe about God and what we believe about who we are in Christ and living that out, letting that be a a witness and a a fruit of our life. And the Pharisees were just not doing that. They were all show. It was very clear what they were doing was just teaching these things teaching these truths of God, and it became, it became a burden for people. It weighed them down. It crushed them. It closed the kingdom of God to them. It laid heavy burdens on them. It created a situation where they could not ever live up to it, and there was no hope and salvation from it. So Jesus says, we should practice what we preach. May that be your prayer. May it be our prayer as a church that as we follow Jesus, that we would not make this a private faith, There are things about being a Christian and following Jesus that are incredibly individualistic. It is about Jesus dying for you and your individual sins. But even though Christianity is individual in ways, it's never private. It's never isolated. It is meant to be seen. It is meant to be seen as we live out and embrace the gospel that it proclaims the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. People should see it. People should wonder. People should question it. People should be amazed by it or even confused by it. Why do you live so differently? Why do you live so counterculturally? So let that be our prayer as well. Prayer number two, that we would love God's approval over man's praise. Based on verse five to seven, Jesus starts by saying, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Here's something about the Pharisees and the scribes. Their behavior is not good. And even when their behavior was good, it wasn't good. Isn't this amazing? So Jesus says, don't do what they do. And then the next passage, he's saying, but they do a lot of good stuff. Is he being inconsistent here? He's not. Jesus is saying, they don't do good. And when they, even when they try to do good, it's not good because the, they do it for the wrong reasons. Their reward 
is just in that praise. Their motivation is in the praise of man. Their means is in their own strength. The outcome is for, for looking good in other people's eyes. So Jesus addresses this before in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about those who pray and give and fast in order to be seen by others. This is a sneaky temptation. I don't need to tell you that. It comes quiet. It comes in subtle ways. The praise of man, the love of man. It's a, such a, a subtle temptation that gets into our heart and our motivations. And we do things because we know that the potential for others looking at us, giving us praise, liking us, is great. It's huge. The temptation is found in peer pressure. When we give in to the pressure of others, it's, it's, it's found in low self-esteem. It's found in people-pleasing. And Jesus desires to bring about new desires in his people where we are able to engage in works of righteousness and obedience motivated by an ultimate desire to bring praise to God and honor and glory to God regardless of what other people think. Can you do that? Are you at that place where you have that kind of courage and that kind of strength and, and that kind of vision that you would say, God, I want to follow you even if other people don't think it's cool or even other people mock me or even if I don't get any attention at all or, God, I'm going to do this if no one knows about it. You see, if a, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around, does it make any sound, right? If you don't post it on the internet, does anybody ever, is it ever good? Can we do something just good because God has called us to do it and no one ever finds out about it? And if we can't, that's, that's the Holy Spirit wanting to show us something in our heart that desires in some way the, the praise of man. The Pharisees' weakness was not in their ability to do good to others. But their weakness was that they loved man's praise more than God's praise. And here it is. You cannot serve God while pretending. You and I just cannot, we cannot simply, we cannot praise God, serve God, honor Him. We cannot do truly righteous deeds while pretending. What's the secret to breaking free from this curse of people-pleasing? The secret is anchoring our, our hope and our dreams and our identity and our very lives in the one who did not seek his own glory but gave up his glory and humbled himself. In Jesus, Philippians 2 shows us that Jesus, who, was, who, was, who had the glory of God, who knew where he was and came from and knew where he was going, that he was equal with God, but he did not seek equality with God, something to be grasped. He did not hold on to it, but he emptied himself of his glory, became like us, sacrificed his life, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The secret to breaking free from this self-serving, people-pleasing idolatry is to anchor our hope in what God, God's pleasure for us, not man's pleasure of us. Are you content with the fact that Jesus looked upon us, he looked upon you as a sinful and needy, and broken and unimpressive and distant from him person, and he loved you? Is it enough that Jesus looked upon you, that God looked at you and saw you as an enemy running in the opposite direction, and he, instead of leaving to you to yourself, and instead of accusing you of all that you have done wrong, he gave his very life for you. And because of that, you have his approval. You are accepted based on his record and character, not yours. 
Is it enough for you to know that the God and creator of the universe loves you, cares for you, has affection for you, deep affection for you, that he calls you sons and daughters, and there's nothing that can take you from his loving care. Is that enough for you? How distorted and twisted is our heart and minds if that's not enough for us? That what God thinks of us isn't enough, but we have to go out seeking this approval and love from other people. It's distorted. It's confusing. And let our prayer be that we would increase in our contentment for God's approval. How we live and how we parent and how we work and how we look and how we act and how we behave with one another and, how, and how, what we accomplish in life. Let our, let our motivation be, God, does this bring praise to you? Are you pleased with this? Because that's all I care about. Prayer number three, that we would define success according to Jesus' categories and not the world's categories. Jesus ends in verse 7, uh, with verse 7, talking about how the leaders loved being called rabbi and being noticed in the marketplace. Have you ever gone to a very public place with a friend and you saw a friend at that very public place and that friend didn't know this friend, but that, uh, that friend was very like, oh, hi, how you doing? And you're just talking with them. There's something that you feel really awesome that like, you feel really popular. And I'll tell you this, if I, pastors struggle with this, I love going out into public places and people calling me pastor and recognizing me and being really affectionate and really like excited and I'm with somebody that doesn't go to our church. <laughs> I'm like, this, better, this person better recognize <laughs> how awesome it is to come to my church. <laughs> Every single pastor does that, I promise. But you do it too, I think. There's something about, you don't have to be called rabbi to feel really important around other people. You see, these people, they love to be called, they love to be called pastor. They love to be called teacher. Doesn't it feel amazing when you're noticed? Doesn't it feel amazing when people notice your accomplishments? It does. It feels amazing. Doesn't it feel amazing when someone notices you in public, when you go to the movie theater or a restaurant or the mall, and you know somebody there? Doesn't it feel amazing? Now, there's something good about it that is twisted, that becomes like, that, that, that manifests the effects of the fall. Something good about this is that man is not meant to be alone, that we are built for community, that it is good that we would be connected with one another, and we should love to see our friends out in public. But then there's something twisted about it that happens where, where we feel actually morally superior to other people because we are noticed and they are not. Because we have community and they don't. Because we are on a certain rung in the ladder of the social hierarchy and they are a little bit lower. The rabbis loved that they were just a little bit higher than other people. They loved being called pastor. It might sound like Jesus is teaching against titles like pastor and teacher and instructor or spiritual fathers and that's not the case. We see this reiterated throughout the New Testament that, <clears throat> that actually Jesus gives these giftings to his people. He calls people teacher and leader, and, and even Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. And we see these categories in Scripture, and by themselves they are not bad, but that's, this is the point. His point is to denounce those who use their leadership and authority to assert even the slightest form of superiority over another person. He's rebuking pride that comes from feeling that you are impressive because of what you've accomplished in your life, because of the titles that you have, because of the degrees, the degrees that you hold. 
because of the things that you have acquired, because of the money that you have. He is rebuking any form of pride that comes from your accomplishments. Clear application for sure for church leaders, but just as helpful application for you, for any Christian, for it instructs us how to view success and power and authority. Jesus' categories for success are so foreign to the world's categories for success. Jesus was clear that the kingdom does not belong to the capable or the strong or the wise or the rich or those who have much. Rather, it comes to the poor in spirit. It comes to the meek. It comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is clear that the work of the gospel is much more like farming than it is like a microwave. That to be a success doesn't mean that you just got really big, really fast, really far-reaching consequences. Being faithful could mean, and being successful could mean that no one ever knows about what you're doing. But the world does not believe that. To be successful is to do something big and great for God. To do something that everyone knows about it. To have a lot of followers on, on Twitter. A lot, of, a lot of people reading our material. A lot of people subscribing to what we say. But what if no one does? Is it possible to be successful? Is it possible to be faithful if no one if no one thinks you're great. Jesus is clear that when we are, that we must be tirelessly committed to spiritual growth of individuals and families and faithfulness in our daily lives. That we are to, ought to be focused on what is good and best and faithful rather than what is big and glamorous and enticing and showy. We define greatness not as the world does, but as Jesus defines greatness, which will manifest itself in a daily dependence on Jesus. This prayer means that what you do and how you feel and what you value is not determined by external pressures, but determined by why Jesus, what Jesus has called you and I to do. There's one goal. There is one goal, and it's not your accomplishments, it's not the titles you gain, it is not the degrees that you hold, it is not the wealth that you acquire. Your one job is to be faithful to Jesus. And if you do that, you have everything. Success Jesus' way is when people are transformed by the gospel deep beneath the surface of their lives. Success, Jesus' way, is when barriers to living in authentic community with others are broken down and removed so that we can be real about our lives. Success, Jesus' way, is when a consumer mentality, a consumer-driven mentality of church is replaced with a life-together ministry of love for one another. When we come not seeking our own desires and pleasures, but we seek the benefit of others. Faithfulness is so much better than success. Seek to be faithful. Let us seek to be faithful, not to be successful. Prayer four, that we would be characterized as those who humbly serve others rather than focus only on ourselves. This prayer flows closely out of the last one, closely out of the previous one. A Christ-like view of success and power will overflow into humble service for others. You see, when we change our mindset for what is, faith, what is successful, we're naturally going to just pour our life out for other people. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
What a statement. What a verse. We should grieve when we see Christians all over our church, all over our country, assimilating to our world's view of what success and power and authority is. We should grieve it as it relates to politics and relationships and employment and work and marriage and parenting and schooling. We should grieve when we see Christians assimilating to the world's view of what greatness is. Jesus says those who humble themselves will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves, those who pursue the world's view of success will be brought low. Those who seek to honor themselves, Jesus says, your time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. Actually, I think that was from Gladiator. <clears throat> but, it was, but that's kind of the gist of what Jesus is saying. We're naturally prone to compete with one another. We're naturally prone to look at weakness and to exploit it. We're naturally prone to feel good when we are better than other people. We're naturally prone to measure ourselves against our neighbor, to compare cars and houses, diplomas and spouses. To humbly serve others is truly unnatural. To humbly serve others is actually supernatural. And this kind of success requires patience and courage and wisdom to put aside our rights in order to do what is right in God's eyes. Which sentence best describes your thoughts throughout the day? Two sentences here. First sentence, what would be best for me in this situation? Or, what burdens of others can I make lighter? What do you think about most in your day? Do you think, how will this affect me? How will this, how will this affect and ruin my life? How will it cause me to sacrifice? How will this disrupt my routine? How will this make, take away my comfort? Or do you think, where are the burdens and how can I make them lighter? What has God given to me to bless me that I can be a blessing to others? Jesus says, this is what you should be praying for. Instead of praying for your comfort, instead of praying for your safety, instead of praying for your wealth, we should be praying for others who are burdened, the lost, the last, and the least, and we should be seeking how God has blessed us and how we could use that to be a blessing to others. Could we pray for that? Let that be our prayer the next six years, the next 66 years. The ministry of burden bearing is a vocation of great blessing and a person who develops this skill of being able to detect burdens in other people and being able to serve that person and humbly give to that person is a great honor and blessing to God. And least, and, and least of all, it's a blessing to each other. Prayer number five, that our relationships would lead us to holiness, not just happiness. You see, this rebuke comes from verse 13 to 15. The Pharisees were so passionate about relationships. Another maybe myth about Pharisees, it wasn't just they were all about the law and all about reading their Bible and they hated people. The Pharisees were actually very involved. They were people, people. They were, they were evangelizing. They were sharing the faith. They were teaching people. They were going far. They were crossing oceans to meet people, to share, to share the word of God. But they were leading people down a road that never got closer to Jesus, never got closer to God, just closer to themselves and their way of life. They're converts, Jesus says, and this is, what a statement. They're twice as much a child of hell as you are. Oh my goodness. Because what you're doing is as you are evangelizing, all you are doing is you are, they are not getting any closer to Jesus they're not getting any closer to being more and more like God 
All they're doing is becoming more like you, more pious, more self-righteous, more put together on the outside. And all this time spent is they are neglecting their true heart condition. They're getting no closer to the kingdom of God. The minute, and what a horrible thing to hear. When we give ourselves to, to friendship, when we give ourselves to friendship to others, and we form a bond that creates happiness and joy, I want you to know this is extremely good, it's extremely appropriate, extremely wonderful, but it's not the main goal. Your friendships with others, the main goal is not that you would just have a good time. Your main goal in friendships within the church is that you would make each other more like Jesus. God means for our community to be a context for the shaping and sharpening of our lives to be more and more like Jesus. I hope you find friends here in the sense that you enjoy their fellowship, that you laugh about your your experiences together, that you build memories, that your kids grow up loving one another. I hope all of that happens. But hear this, that's not the point. It is not the main goal. You can do all of that and miss out on the greatest gift of all. You can miss out on heaven. You can miss out on the kingdom of God. And yet God has given us this context, this crucible for change, relationships that is meant for our transformation. May we, may we be more focused and passionate about making one another more holy, more like Jesus than we are just happy. And that's why I say not just happiness, because it should make us happy. But when we truly know what happiness is, we will realize that it needs to be about Jesus. If your community of Christian friends does not sharpen you to be more like Jesus, then you have a wrong idea of what Christian community is. Christian community is the laboratory for change, the crucible in which God shows us our greatest sins and our greatest needs that are met ultimately in Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. Prayer number six. We're almost there. Prayer number six. That we would move beyond our easy Christianity and express costly love towards other others. That we would move beyond easy Christianity and express costly love towards others. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus is a great storyteller and a great master of metaphors. See what he says here in this passage? He says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Picture this. You have a, you have a a glass of cold iced tea, and in there is floating a fly on the top of it, and rightfully so, you go and say, gross, there's a fly floating in my water, and you take a spoon, and you, you flick it out, and then you drink the drink, and in there is a used dirty Band-Aid. And you say, that's okay, I got the gnat out. Jesus is saying, you are focused on things that are appropriate and they're, they're commands of God. You're focused, though, on the little things. And there are weightier things that you are neglecting. Shame on you. There are weightier things in the Word of God that you are neglecting to do because it's harder to do it. It is easy to fish out the gnat and say, ugh, it tainted my, my tea. It is harder. It is harder to, to get a new drink to pay for a new drink, to toss that out, to start all over. It's harder to change mindsets. It's harder to sacrifice our time. There is in this parable, in the straining of the gnat and swallowing of the camel, there's a lack of sense of priority. 
And to criticize you for neglecting the band-aid is not to say that you should not care about the fly. It is to say that you should care about the fly, but you are being faithful to convenient commands that you enjoy doing for God, but you're faithless to the harder commands that are costly to you. All the Bible matters. This is not Jesus saying, guys, some of, this, some of the Bible you don't need to pay attention to. All of the Bible matters. But even so, there are matters of God's word that are weightier. For instance, failing to help out a neighbor in need on Sunday because you're committed to honoring the Sabbath and not doing any work is a failure to be faithful to a weightier matter. It is easy to measure a tenth, as the Pharisees did in this reference, to measure a tenth, a tithe of your paycheck, of their cumin and mint. It is easy, technically speaking, for you to give 10% of your income. You just multiply what you have by 0.10, and that's what you should give. It's a sacrifice, but it's an act easy enough to do. It is difficult to give yourself and your time to a neighbor who is difficult to deal with, who regularly oversteps their welcome who regularly is just unpleasant to be with. It's harder to forgive a child who's rebellious. It's harder to, to forgive a spouse who has inflicted a wound. It is harder to give time that is more precious to you. Jesus is saying, good, you tithe. Great. You study your Bible. You pray. You go to church. I see all those things. Good job. Keep doing it. You're doing fine. But your righteous deeds are not a substitute for justice and mercy and faithfulness. Your righteous deeds are not a way for you to say, I do a lot for God, and so maybe I'll leave this stuff, this harder stuff to others who maybe feel gifted in that area. Some of you are really good at the spiritual disciplines like prayer and tithing and church attendance and reading your Bible, and really bad at forgiveness and grace and sacrificial love. These are the weightier matters of God's law. So may we be a church that moves beyond just the easy Christianity. It's easy to come. It's easy to give. It's easier to read and to pray. It is hard to let God's word transform us at a deep heart level where we actually start giving up things that we don't want to give up. It is hard actually to live, God, live faithful to God to such an extent that our life is changed and altered and never the same again. We should be faithfully following God to such a degree that it radically changes our life. And we don't have to decide between the two. We don't have to decide between the gnat and the, and the band-aid. He isn't saying, like, well, you got to suffer. He's saying, like, there are weightier matters. You'll be fine if you swallow the fly, but you might not be fine if that band-aid makes its way through your system. All right, we'll move on from that. <laughs> Prayer number seven, last and seven. Last and seventh, in all our spiritual activity, that we would not forget the purpose of it all. Two metaphors given here, both incredibly pregnant with meaning. The first one, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty, full of greed and self-indulgence. Second one, you're like a tomb. You're like a tomb that is white and sanitary. It's sanitized on the outside, but you have dead bones inside. See, during Passover, people would journey into the city and they would pass these cemeteries, they'd pass tombs. And so the officials would actually prepare 
prepare the city for people walking through and they would whitewash the tombs. They would, they would plaster limestone and things so it would actually become white and it would be really clean so that if, if you accidentally brushed up against it, you wouldn't be unclean because if you touched the tomb and it was dirty, you couldn't participate in the Passover ceremonies. And so this is a way of like protecting the people. But there's dead bones inside. There's dead people inside. So we look at that and say, oh, well, everything looks great. But there's deadness inside. Two images that depict a, a, a pretty exterior, and inside there's only death and rot. The warnings to us should be obvious. All religious activity that is aimed at changing the outward behavior while neglecting the deeper issues of the heart is a dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. It's possible to spend your days and weeks engulfed in spiritual activity of many kinds and miss the point of it all. You go to church, you, you go to small group, you read the Bible, you pray, you check off the boxes, you go through the motions, but if you're not careful, you can miss the whole point. There is a curse of sin that, li that lies deep inside of all of us that cannot be fixed by any amount of polishing the outside, any amount of spiritual activity. Jesus, in this strong rebu rebuke, is inviting the crowds and his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes, even the leaders of, of, of religion at a time, He's aiming their, his rebuke at them. He's inviting them into one of two ways to live. And it's not between being a good person or being a bad person. It is choosing to live our lives where we are trying to save ourselves by changing our behavior, by changing our outward appearance, or we're trusting in Jesus to do it. So Jesus is giving us two ways to, to live. It's, it's not between be a good person or be a bad person. It's, it's trust in yourself or trust in Jesus to do it. Do you remember when Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, like forever ago in chapter 5? Remember when we were in chapter 5? Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're better than the scribes and Pharisees. What is he saying? He's saying this. If you base your life on rejecting God's law and do whatever you want, you're going to miss heaven. But then he says this. Then he says, if you base your life on obeying God's word, you better be perfect. You better not make a mistake or you're going to miss heaven. So all of Matthew might be summed up in this way. You can choose the immoral path of your life and do what you want. Or you can choose the religious path. Either way, you're not getting into heaven. What a great story. <laughs> what are, there are two ways to miss out on God's blessing. Trying really hard or not trying at all. So what do we do? What does it mean to be a Christian? What on earth can we do as Jesus' followers? Where's our hope? Jesus is not inviting us to be more spiritual. He is not inviting us to be more religious. The gospel is not our answer from being bad people to being good people. The gospel is about going from being a person who trusts in our ability to trusting in Jesus' ability for us. What he's accomplished for us. It's a whole new way of living and seeing life. There's only one place in all of human history where we can go to get the resources needed to obey this life that, that must be lived. And that's at the cross. That's at the cross of Christ. Jesus, who was stripped of his outer clothing, he, was turned, he turned the other cheek when he was cursed and ridiculed. He expressed incredible restraint to not destroy his enemies when he was killed. The power to love our enemies comes from God's power to love us when his grace is poured out on us at the cross. If God only loved those who loved him, what would that say about God's love for us? It'd be so superficial. It'd be so fake. 
It'd be so weak. If God welcomed only his friends into his presence, what would that say about his friendship with us? It wouldn't be real. But God calls us into a life that cannot be lived without his power. He calls us into a task that requires the power of his grace. May we be a people that, that, that are people that, where our ultimate hope rests not in who we are and what we do and what we accomplish, but in what, what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. To know Jesus is to say, you are Jesus, my Savior and Lord. And because you're Lord, there are no conditions to my obedience to you. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I'll give whatever you ask of me. I'll abandon all that you've asked me to abandon because you're worthy of nothing less. How does Jesus close this most famous rebuke probably in all of Scripture? These 35 verses of him just calling people like sons of hell and horrible people. Like this, he invites us, and this is where we close the Gospel of Matthew. He invites all of us to take a close look at our heart. How are you doing? Take a look at the deep, the deep inner life of what's going on. Not on the outside, not what looks pretty, not what habits you're doing, but what is going on in your heart? What are your hopes? What are your feels, fears? Are you pretending? Are you going on the wrong path? Are you lost? Are you spending more time in the Bible, but somehow even doing that, you feel so disconnected from God. You don't feel like he loves you. The way to end this passage is for us to just all take an honest look at our lives and to seriously ask, how am I doing with following Jesus? Second, second thing is that Jesus invites us to be corrected by what he has to say. He invites us to be corrected. He loves us so much. What is he telling you today? I want to invite you to hear what Jesus is saying. And of these seven rebukes, or even of these seven prayers, do you see areas, particular areas of weakness for you or of unfaithfulness? Do you see a love of the world or a love of other, the praise of man? Do you see a lack of faithfulness to pursue a genuine relationship with Jesus? Where are, you, where are you needing to be more like Christ? You could be a good person or a bad person and still be on the, the wide path that leads to destruction because you're still trying to save yourself. Where do you need to trust in Him? And lastly, He invites us to build our lives on Him. Know where you are today and make a move. Make a move toward Jesus. What does that look like? What does it look like for you to make a move towards Jesus? You hear the sermon. I want you to know that Jesus empathizes. He has compassion. He has sympathy. If we could get it right, then we wouldn't need Jesus to die. And some of you might be afraid of hearing Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. Some of you might be afraid of hearing these words that he gave to the, the Pharisees and said, you guys are like dead inside. You look really good, but you're dead inside. There's such good hope. There's such good hope because Jesus, not counting our sins against us, not seeing our weaknesses uh, against us, he actually became our sin. He took on our sin and all of our weakness. He became like us, died on the cross for our sins to be, and paid that payment that we could not ever pay to set us free, to give us forgiveness. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for every day. The gospel is for every moment in your life. To get the gospel is to turn from our self-righteousness and rely on Jesus' record for a relationship with God. Let these be our prayers as a church and as his people. Let's pray together.